Welcome everybody to Trig's Show. I'm here with Eric, Dan, who decided to dress up for this event, and Brian here. And our special guest today is television writer uh, from The Simpsons, uh, showrunner from The Simpsons, Emmy Award winner, uh, producer, future. We'll, we'll get into everything you've done on TV. I can't even name all your accolades, but more importantly for me, just a television writer of Simpsons, Bill Oakley. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, I, I have to get this out of the way, which I like to do before I get all, like, smitten and stuff. Um, if you would have told, <laughs> told 13-year-old me that I'd be speaking to someone who wrote on The Simpsons, which is my favorite show of all time, I probably would have slapped the shit out of myself. So <laughs> I, I, I have to thank you so much that like, you have no idea how much this means to me. It is like a dream, one of my dreams coming true, to speak to someone who had something to do with the show. So I have to thank you. It is you. my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Don't you don't need to slap the shit out of yourself. <laughs> it might happen. It might happen later. But uh, all right, uh, let's get into before we get into the shows you're on. Uh, we like to get a little background about the guests we're ha we have on. So like, uh, talk about like your upbringing, how you got into TV writing and stuff. You know, I always wanted to be a cartoonist because um, I, I grew up uh, out in the country, and my uh, I spent a lot of time reading Mad Magazine because my brother, when he went to college, left the hundreds of issues of Mad Magazine. So that was kind of like how I learned to read. And I started out as a cartoonist, basically like I was a cartoonist in, I drew cartoons for the high school paper and stuff like that. And then when I met Josh, uh, Josh Weinstein, who was my partner on The Simpsons, as you know, we in high school, we decided to start our own humor magazine, which was a pretty big deal because high schools don't usually have magazines like that. And it was it was like a college level high school uh, humor magazine. And I drew it and, and kind of edited it. And, and he wrote most of the material. And then when I went to college and I, went, I worked on the Harvard Lampoon and I it was clear that I was I was still a good cartoonist, but like with so many better artists, I kind of just transitioned into writing. And uh, since a lot of the people that I knew um that was kind of like the thing is like, what are you going to do when you graduate? You're going to go to law school if you, you know, if you can afford it, or are you going to go into business or wall street or TV writing? And it seemed like it was worth a shot. And Josh and I, cause a lot of people had gone on mainly to write for David Letterman back when um, that was the thing to do or, or Saturday Night Live. We decided to give it a shot. And it took about, we had a rough time because it took us about four years of complete uh, crappy unemployment. And, and we we're just about to give up until we finally wrote a script that people liked um, and it eventually got us an assignment to write in The Simpsons. And I think you know the rest. Yeah. Now, what what methods did you take? Like, you said um, you finally wrote one someone liked. Like, what was wrong with the ones previously? Were you just, like, throwing stuff at a wall? You know, were they that bad? Or It's interesting. People can tell, like, the shows that we were writing, we weren't writing. We we're just, like, do you remember the show Coach? Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Craig T. Okay. Nelson. Yeah, right. So we didn't really like that, but we're like, we can write one that sounds just like a regular coach. And it did. And it was like, <laughs> and finally somebody wrote it and got some, a, a, a guy that we later worked with read it and said, you guys don't like this show very much, do you? <laughs> and I'm like, not really. And they were, and he was like, you got to find a show that you like and you got to write and you got to write it like, you know, like every, every word counts. And we were like, we actually didn't like that many sitcoms at that point, but uh, then Seinfeld came on and it was the, it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles back then. It was the first four episodes. And I think they did the Chinese restaurant, maybe something like that. And we're like, now this is a show that we love. Hmm. And, 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 but people hadn't heard of it. We actually wrote, we wrote our, our script that got us through the door, so to speak, was this Seinfeld script. And, um, people didn't know what Seinfeld was at that time. People hadn't seen it. Like Mike Reese and Al Jean, who were running the Simpsons at that time, they read that script and one of them had never even heard of Seinfeld or whatever, but they liked it enough to give us an assignment and, and to uh, write what, what became Marge gets a job. Hmm. So how does that like collaboration work with like you and Josh? Like, or, or like one of you guys like more of like kind of like the storyteller teller and like character developer, like how does that work with you guys? You know, it's evolved over the years. Um, it used to be that we would literally just sit right next to each other at the computer and just talk it through, like scene by scene, line by line. And it became, that became laborious after a while. And we decided like, how about we split it up and you write a rough draft of the first half and I write a rough draft of the second half. And then we swap and I rewrite yours and you rewrite yours. And that's, that's what we've been doing for the past, since we've been doing that for about 15 years on the stuff that we work for together. But before that, it was just like, literally like start on line one, page one, sit next to each other. And it's more fun. That's the thing about it is it, it's far more fun to work with someone who's especially your best friend that is sit by yourself, which is sitting by yourself and writing sucks. It's really one of the worst jobs in the world, unless you're the kind of person who likes to like 
be alone all the time and like you you know you're better suited to work at the south pole <laughs> over the winter in a room by yourself great that, that this writing is the job for you but otherwise it's really boring and lonely and so working with your best friend is great now that the the downside is that you got to split a salary in and in, uh, in hollywood the salary you get one salary for two people and when you both have families and stuff to raise and pay for even if it's making a fair amount of money it's still you're taking a, a, a fraction of what literally half of what you'd be getting on your own hmm. now what is what's the process like of actually pitching a show idea to a network because i've like i've written a couple different things and i have them literally just collecting dust because i'm not really sure of like what the process is like like once you have a completed uh like a show idea like a little bit of a layout like a synopsis like what is that process like um it's basically going through gatekeeper after gatekeeper that's one of the things that i actually like about today's landscape <laughs> far more than the landscape of the 90s, that you don't necessarily need Look at all these people on YouTube who every single day have far more viewers than the most popular network shows. Yeah. Like that's like, what do they need these networks for? Nothing. They don't, they're like, why would you want to be on NBC and get 3 million viewers when you can have 7 million viewers on YouTube and get a hundred percent of the money and have all their creative control. So, but to answer your question, the way that it's been in, in Hollywood, probably since 1948 is you have to have an agent and you have to have an agent who, um, and basically what happens is you tell your agent, I have an idea. I'd like to pitch it to the networks. And they say, if the network, and then the agent broaches it with these various places at the networks. There's development executives. You, know, you, you meet with the, whatever, the director of comedy development. And you tell them your idea. You see they have a meeting. It's always usually often very tense and awkward. You have a meeting. You say, okay, here's my idea. It's about four guys who live in a house. And the house is haunted. And so forth. you just sit there and you tell them about it like that. And then they say, hmm, and they ask you questions about it. it takes about 20 or 30 minutes. They ask you questions about it. And then they usually say, okay, well, let us talk about it. Let us think about it. We'll get back to you. And 90% of the time, you never hear from them again. They don't get back to you. And they don't, that's the way it works. That's the polite pass, which is just letting – it's so annoying, too. They, and they – sometimes – the people, if you're super lucky, and also it only happens if you're like J.J. Abrams, they'll say, yes, we want it right now. We're going to buy it. And, but you got to have somebody real powerful in the room to make that decision. You can't have it be a low-level person. So and, and the only people who get the president of the network in the, in the meeting are J.J. Abrams or, or whatever or Shonda Rhimes. So uh, otherwise, sometimes you hear back. And then if they do, then there's a process. They say, okay, we're going to order, we're going to order a pilot script. And even if they say we're going to order the whole series, they want to see a pilot script first and then they can bail out. And so then you write the script and they give you notes and so forth. And then at a certain point they say, well, are they going to make it or we're not? Mm -hmm. And every one of these processes is hard. It's really like anybody who gets a show on the air deserves kudos just for achieving that because there's so many hoops you got to jump through just to get to that stage. Even if the show totally sucks, you got to imagine that they jumped through 99 hoops to get there. And it might not even be their fault that the show sucks. It might be that the star doesn't want to do it the way that it was written or the network has given so many notes that they've screwed it all up. You know, anyway, there's that's the development process in a nutshell. The one thing that like you bring up a lot too, is that you always thought that the show was going to be canceled, but you never really delved into why you thought that like, was it, was that just like part like, of like your writing process of like, Oh, like this is going to influence me just to write whatever the hell I want to. Or did you legitimately think that the Simpsons was going to get canceled when you were on there? Yeah. Cause the show was okay. TV shows didn't go more than nine or 10 seasons. Like mm -hmm. if you think you guys are probably all too young to know this, but like, it was insanely rare for any TV show. Like, what did Cheers? What Cheers was the most popular show of all time? Went for ten seasons. Was Gunsmoke? Was Gunsmoke? Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke went for twenty-five right. years, but it was a what drama. About Mash? Mash, was, Mash was Mash was eleven seasons, maybe. Right. Okay. I, I don't know. Maybe nine, maybe ten. But in any case, all the most legendary comedy TV shows of all time nine ten seasons maximum and we were already on season eight we were like this cannot possibly go for more than another season and as one of the wrongest things ever said <laughs> but but that was the logic at the time because you're seeing you're seeing cheers wind down you're seeing seinfeld right and it's like that's also you guys don't remember this the show was not that the ratings were not that good we were number 60 like it, it, there was one in the, in the first and second season when, when we were on against Cosby, the show was in the top 10 briefly, but during the time, during the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth season, we were always number 52 or number 60 and it's an expensive show. And we were constantly, I was thinking, well, first of all, the show is eight years old. It's really expensive. It never, it always gets clobbered by mad about you <laughs> riser every week. So how much longer are they going to keep doing this? And so we were like, 
we were also in the reposition of having complete control over the show because both Matt Groening and Jim Brooks were not, they were never there. So we just got, Josh and I just got to do whatever we wanted all the time. And we we're like, this is the greatest show that's ever been created. We were blessed to get this job. Let's have all the fun we want of it. Let's do every crazy crap, every the spinoff spectacular, Frank Grimes, uh, anything like anything we can come up with. We're going to do it because this is going to, this thing is going to run out of gas in the next year. And we want to have had all the fun that could possibly be had with it. You guys might – that's that's so weird because to me, like, the five through eight is, like, the best season. best season. So, like, it's wild that that would be the lowest – like, the ratings aren't that good, but it actually might have – like, what's the turning point? Why do you think – How old wrong? How old were you when those seasons were on? Uh, Four. Yeah, maybe six. Right. See, that's the thing. Right. 18 to 34 was not – 18. the TV only cares about 18 to 34 and 18 mm. to 49. Okay, so the show was getting these ratings. We get a, we get ninety percent of everybody under eighteen, but we'd only get eleven percent of people eighteen to forty nine, and those people, all those people, would all be watching Mad About You, or mm. you know, or sixty minutes football football overrun or whatever. So that's the thing. Like they didn't care. Nobody cared that people under eighteen were loving the show. On when it was so broadcast. the fans wow. that ended up growing up finally got to the age where they right, cared right. and then the ratings wow that's really interesting all sure. right. i should also say you guys don't remember you're all sure you don't remember grown-ups really did not like animation back then and like this is the thing that is absolutely it's mind-boggling today the simpsons was the other than uh, the brief appearance of wait till your father gets home in the 70s the simpsons was the only primetime animated show since the flintstones the mm -hmm. only one yeah and people thought that and I'm not, not talking about 90% of people thought that cartoons were for kids because they were every cartoon that had ever been made, except for two or three, you know, mm -hmm. theatrical films by, um, you know, like Fritz the cat were made for kids. So when the Simpsons came on, everybody thought it was for kids and they were shocked because it, the Bart said, eat my shorts. And it's like, Hey, we can't show that to kids. And, yeah. and everyone was really alarmed about it. So, but even through the time that we worked on The Simpsons and long into the early 2000s, you'd always run into people who say, I don't watch cartoons. Cartoons are for kids. And they would say it to you, even though you worked on The Simpsons, you'd be <laughs> shocked. It's like, you see Simpsons, oh yeah, no, I don't watch cartoons. That's for kids. And you'd be like, damn, you know, this show is pretty respected. <laughs> but mm -hmm. anyway, so that was the attitude of people. And it, honestly, until like their King of the Hill and South Park, when those two came on, that was when this thing started to crumble. This prejudice against cartoons, and then people who obviously grew up with that don't have this, don't have that prejudice. But you know, I suspect that people, if you think most people over fifty, you probably still feel that way. One, one of my, well, my favorite episode of all time is Homer's Enemy with Frank Grimes. So I have to Thank go you. out there. But like, that uh, was not that popular at the time either. Uh, it's that was it's the funniest episode. That's like, uh, uh, you could ask Dan up here during quarantine. He actually texted me, give me 10 Simpsons episodes to watch. Literally, almost all of them, you were either a writer or a showrunner on. So, so like, it, yeah. so like Frank Grimes is my favorite episode. And I want to ask about like this specificness of the writing how it works so in the one scene frank ryan comes in where he comes into homer's house and he's just exhausted and he's like all i got to show for it is this briefcase and his haircut two of the most unique things to write in but they work so like why how many things do you throw out there before you decide on briefcase and haircut because if you would have just said these shoes and these glasses it's not as funny but like yeah. they're so specific with briefcase <laughs> and haircut and then you live on top of a bowling alley below another bowling alley like <laughs> how does it work I, like that you know that's i i i'm not sure but i'd be willing to bet money that that's just schwarzwelder that's that was i bet it was all in his first draft that was not pitched out like i remember the way that this that episode worked was it was my idea actually i'll take some credit here it was my idea to have homer have an enemy yeah. uh, i was like because we we're often just going through like what's what's regular stuff that regular shows do well uh smithers like that was what homer the smithers was one like that we were like i can't believe somebody hasn't already we didn't already do this idea right. where homer replaces smithers seems very right. obvious and they were are like, what's another thing that regular, you know, comic strips, movies do well? Someone has an enemy. What's the enemy like? The enemy is different than him. It has a different outlook. Okay, and that was my that was my contribution to that. And then we got Schwarzwelder in, and Schwarzwelder gave it his demented touch that only he could provide. He wrote the first. I think we just said we just kind of pitched it out, and we said, here's the general arc of the thing. We spent several hours, as we always did, and then he um, he wrote it. And my guess is that those lines you're quoting just came from him. I mean, like his right. brain doesn't work like anyone else's and he, that's one of the, that's why he was so valuable at the Simpsons. Well, the one, one you specifically wrote, you wrote the Skinner and Seymour 
You wrote the Skinner and Chalmers scene in the... Yeah, Steve Hams, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> Aurora Borealis, where the hell did that come from? Like, how did you think that? It was like an obvious lie. Like, something's bright, <laughs> it's bright. Like, this, that whole thing was like, it just kind of flowed out of me because it was, I was just like, okay, well, what's the next lie? Like, you just got to be in Skinner's head. Like, well, it's, he's more and more desperate and he just keeps, the lies grow more and more preposterous. So what's something that's bright? I don't think that took very much thinking. It's like, there's something bright in the other room. What could it be? What's a bad lie about it? Well, it's the Aurora Borealis. And it, for some reason, it's gotten, it's one of the most famous things having to do with the Aurora Borealis these days. <laughs> it's amazing. So were there like any like jokes that you wrote that didn't take off or still haven't taken off that you still think is like one of like the best things that you wrote? You know, a lot of them have come over time. A lot of them have, have finally gotten their due. Like you guys, I, just to reiterate, most of this stuff was not that popular yeah. <laughs> until the past 10 years. Like I never heard anything about the steamed ham sketch until five years ago when it suddenly became this insanely popular meme due to people in Australia calling the grocery store and asking for steamed hams. And then it took off from there. But like, it, it, it like most of this stuff was not like people didn't really like the Franks. Like I remember Frank Grimes, we were like, people are going to love this. <laughs> and then nothing. We got all the thing we got, we got one letter from a guy who was in the army who said, you've totally captured what it's like to be in the army. Like people are so stupid and no one will listen. And we, we put up on the wall with a thumbtack and we're like, there, there's one guy who likes Frank Grimes who got it. That was the entirety. We never heard anything about it again until like, you know, 2014 or whatever. And, and uh, so that kind of thing was what always happened. Uh, same with 22 short films I had a mediocre table read. Nobody ever talked about it again. And uh, it's not that we thought it was great. That was the, that was the one of the rare, one of the rarest opportunities in TV is when you get to put on what you like with no notes. Because the network, the original conception of the show was that Fox could not give us any notes. They couldn't even come to the table read unless we invited them. They just had to broadcast the tape that we delivered. And wow. also because because Matt was busy uh, with his, his other life and Jim was directing all his Oscar winning movies, they were not there to tell us what to do. So Josh and I, who were always huge Simpsons fans before we even got the job, were like, oh, we were, they, they, the clowns are running the circus. So we got to do what we wanted to do. And that, I would say, honestly, most of the stuff that we wanted to do, we did because there was nobody to tell us not to put it on the air. And we never wanted to do anything that was too dirty. Like the Simpsons doesn't belong, doesn't, there's nothing, you shouldn't put dirty stuff on the Simpsons, it doesn't belong there. Mm -hmm. um, or, or explicit drug references and stuff. So we weren't, we never really pushed the envelope except for the John Waters, the, the, the gay episode where the mm -hmm. censor totally flipped out. And, and they sent us like, oh, I don't know, 70 notes about this stuff. And we were, have you guys heard this story before? It's on the DVD I have before. not, but you would not be able to play that episode today. That, that'd be a lot harder today to throw out there. I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Like it's true. Today is th things are even weirder today, mm -hmm. but at the time, the policy, the censor, the only person we had to answer to at Fox was the censor. And the censor would generally just say, please use discretion about showing Homer's naked buttocks, things like that. And they send these faxes. This is from the era of faxes. They would send a fax with typed up notes. And the notes would usually, there'd usually be three or four notes, like please use discretion when showing Homer's naked buttocks. Please delete or replace the word scumbag, things like that. And they were usually, it, it, the censor was pretty uptight, but we weren't trying to push the boundaries uh, that much. Then we did this John Waters episode. The censor sent back these notes. And then the general policy, by the way, was we would just ignore every note. We would never address any note because they would, because the thing is that there's so many rewrites and it takes 10 months. A lot of the stuff that they complained about would be gone by the time that, that it came back. So we just ignored every note. And then if it came back, you know, if it came down to the wire and we still were animating in color, then maybe we would address it. So for, uh, for Homer's phobia, it wasn't just one or two lines they sent back two solid pages of typewritten notes and there must've been 30 notes. Every single thing that had to do with gay, homosexuality, whatever had to be removed. And then at the bottom, it said like the entire premise and substance of this episode are not suitable for broadcast, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were just like, wow. But we didn't know what to do. We were just like, okay, well, we're just do the same thing we always do, which is ignore every <laughs> single note. And then we ignored it. Nine months later, the episode is animated, comes back from Korea in color. There's the new president of Fox and the censor has been fired and replaced. And so the new censor gets the final cut of the episode. One note comes back and it just says acceptable for broadcast. Oh, and that was it. So it was, uh, it was great. That, it's almost that was, like um, they weren't listening though. Cause like, if you watch that full episode, it's kind of like a lesson learned at the end. 
Like, yeah. he oh, yeah. kinda, like, you got what I'm saying? Homer comes into his own, like, all right, I need to accept gay people. Like, they're good people, you know? Right. It's, well, people, that kind of thing wasn't really addressed on television that much in the 90s. It was pretty, I think it was, it was addressed a little bit on shows, drama shows, like 30-something and places like that. But they were not, it certainly wasn't addressed on, on cartoons, um, you know, with an audience of so many kids, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. The Fox was nervous about it. But then, like I said, something happened in those nine months. Uh, that involved getting those people being replaced and maybe America got more progressive in, in those nine months. Anyway. Now you, you took us through a little bit uh, mentioning kind of the process, like sending it out to be made in color. What is, um, what's the process like of creating an episode? Like what goes on behind the scenes? Like after the writing is done, what's the, what's kind of the timeline? Like, have you ever seen the, uh, the behind the scenes thing they did with South Park? where they made, they showed how they made an episode for the week. And then it was, it went all the way up until Wednesday at like nine o'clock. They were getting the, the file to Comedy Central to play. I have not seen that, but I've heard about it and heard it's, it's fascinating. Like the Simpsons yeah. doesn't operate at nearly the speed of South Park. Like it takes 10 months from mm -hmm. the episode. So once the writing is done, it basically, it goes to, um, at the time it was Film Roman, which is the animation company. So the first step outside of the script is the script is being recorded and you got Dan Castellaneta, Hank Azaria, you got the whole actors, you record the script. Um, the editor makes up an audio track, which is the audio of the script. It goes to the film room. It goes to the animators, the animators, uh, a te various teams of animators start drawing it. Like people, there's the character designers, they design all the characters that are the new characters in the episode. There's props, costumes, and there's backgrounds. All that stuff is designed and you got to approve it. And there's storyboards, which basically is every act of the show, is like a done like a comic book. You get like a hundred pages for each act, every shot, and you go over that stuff with them. Then, once all that's approved, if any changes, do all that stuff. Then comes the animatic, which is basically like a storyboard put together, put on film. So it's a black and white pencil version of the show with the audio that you've already put in. And then they bring it over, and we all the writers watch it, and we give notes, we adjust it, we do the rewrites necessary. Uh, then, the, then that goes to Korea which is where the animators, there's five, at least at the time, there were five different animation companies in Korea, um, uh, which did it in color. They, you know, they draw everything. They draw, they, they draw everything in color. It takes them about five or six months. And then when it comes back, that comes back from Korea, the whole show's in color um, uh, with the audio and stuff. And then you edit it down, you do whatever changes, any small changes you can do at that point. Changes are very expensive at that point. So you generally don't make too many. Mm -hmm. um, then you sit with the, with the, composer with Alf Clausen at the time and say, we go through every scene and say, now there's music. I want some sad music here. I want some, you know, upbeat music here, kind of corny music here, whatever. And he does the music. He composes that. He's an orchestra that he works with. And then you sit with the sound effects guy, which at the time was Travis Powers saying every sound effect here, we want a creaky door here. We want this, you know, we want squeaky shoes. We want a lot of stuff falling out of the closet, that kind of thing. And Travis makes up a sound thing. And then the final thing is this thing called the mix where everybody involved in the post-production comes and including the sound effects guys and the music guys. And they project it's on a, it's like a theater type setting. They project this on a giant screen and you sit there basically all day of 10 hours going through every shot and saying, okay, now this should be a little louder. That should be a little softer. I want to hear the squeaky shoes there. I want to hear the music louder here and that kind of thing. And they just uh, raise and lower the levels of everything in the thing to your satisfaction. And then we, at the general and generally at the end, then we'd watch it on a little TV because the sound, we wanted to watch it, hear it the way people would hear it at home, as opposed to in this fancy studio. So we watched the whole show on a regular old TV in the sound mix, and then that's it. Now, after after watching it like that so many times, how do you stop yourself from rethinking any of the jokes or any of the lines? <laughs> I guess I guess because we're a, a combination of confident and lazy. <laughs> and we're like, we're like, we wouldn't have put the joke in there like we wouldn't have put the joke in there if we didn't like it in the first place. Yeah. So you just got to remember that. Like the thing is you can tell over time you did like different showrunners have rewritten different amounts. Like sometimes there'd be episodes where you'd rewrite the whole thing, but I think it's over time you just get a sense for what's working and what's mm. not. Like if you watch the thing, the animatic and nobody's laughing at this important scene, this funny scene, something is wrong. However, in many cases, sometimes Josh and I would just go, I don't care that nobody laughed. That's the way we want the scene to be. <laughs> and then we would just force it through. So that happens too. Um, but uh, in many cases, it's clear. Like, and sometimes we had like a, there's a story problem in many cases, like the one that dog episode, the episode where the blind guy with the dog, mm -hmm. like there was something wrong in the third act of that. And we rewrote it several times. Um, and 
we ended up finally, you know, that's that thing with the Bob Marley ending was just kind of tacked on, but that kind of gave it a fun end. So like, like in some episodes, there's a story problem that just persists throughout and, and you've got to fix it each time. And the other episodes come through and it's like, it, this is perfect. And, and, and you barely change anything, especially if the first draft is perfect from someone like Schwarzwolder or John Beattie. Mm-hmm. Just to touch on that episode, is that the Laddie episode? The canine yeah. mutiny? The part where Milhouse says the bowl, the why did I have the bowl part? Why did I have the bowl? Phenomenal part. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, that's a, yes, you see, the memorable parts of that story, of that episode, are not the ones that involve the story. They're the jokes that we threw in at the last minute to, to make, the sh- better, make it a better episode. <laughs> yeah, Eric, do you want to hop in? Yeah. Have you ever had an idea for a show or even made a pilot that you knew that this was one of the best shows that could be out there or, you know, yes. and it just didn't go anywhere. Like, what yes, all the time. Yeah. We've done it 15 <laughs> times. Yeah. And like, that, that's just painful. I yeah. That's the nature of development. Like the thing is that like, it's, as I said, it's extremely hard to get a show on the air. There's yeah. we, and, and the shows that we have, we've done a, Josh and I have done a wide variety of shows that are kind of, some are more mainstream than others. Our mm-hmm. tastes tend to be not mainstream. And we have done like, because that's what normal. That's most of what we do until Disenchantment came along, and that Josh has done a Disenchantment for three years. I was on it for two years. Most of what we do is development. We either consult on other people's things or we try to get our own things going. And that's why, like, unless the thing goes, you never hear. The public never hears about it. So mm-hmm. um, we've done we've done a number of pilots that were that we think are great <laughs> that yeah. that got you know that got ordered and then the place didn't make it. And usually the usually. The problem is that it's not mainstream enough, which is annoying as yeah. hell. Is there and one like the, specific one that like comes to mind that like? Yeah. St- yes. The best thing we ever wrote, and this is not me. It nobody would watch this. I guess that's what it, we did this thing for HBO. There was basically like a funny version of Mad Men. It took place in 1966 at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, where the guys were, were plotting World War III and the Vietnam War. And it was kind of like, Doctor, if you've seen the movie Dr. Strangelove, it was very much like that, except infused with 60s California stuff. Mm-hmm. And that they, uh, HBO bought it, and they actually admitted that they loved the script, but they just didn't want to, it wasn't going to be popular. Like, this is when they were doing Sex in the City and mm. stuff like that. And it's like, this show is too niche. It's only going to appeal to, like, history nerds <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Not like Sex in the City where everyone's, you know, you can make cocktails to go along with it and this yeah. or that, you know, like this. Show. So that's the kind of thing that we, we've done. We what also did a show. Okay, go ahead. We also did a show um, for CBS that was a drama. We actually, we were in a couple dramas. There was a dramedy, uh, and it was called 22 Birthdays, and it was about the parents at a fancy L.A. private school. And every week they'd get together at a birthday party for one of the kids and there'd be it was a soap opera it was like a soap it was like dallas or some sort of soap opera because the parents hated each other and the many of them were super rich assholes and that actually got ordered cps actually ordered it it was getting it's in cps because we're so not cps but it was exciting but then basically what happened finally was it became clear the show was gonna be so expensive and it was never going to be that popular on cbs because that's where you know they put on most bread and butter kind of like cop shows that it just mm-hmm. gradually fell apart that's another thing that we did like that. So it's part of it is part of the thing that is annoying is that there are only a certain number of outlets and they each have a certain type of thing they want. Now that's very different today in the streaming places. There's more streaming places and they're doing so much crap, but like, this is where I get back to this thing. Like, is it really better to have a show on Netflix that mm-hmm. people see for five minutes than it is to have a show on YouTube? Like Netflix, anytime a sh- Netflix has a show every week, Netflix introduces 50 shows. And you hear about, if you're lucky, you get, you know, you maybe hear about it for a, you get two minutes of publicity before the next one comes on. And then I think, you know, gosh, it's nice. Paycheck is nice. But honestly, if you had your own show on YouTube or whatever, you get far more, you could do it the way you wanted. I mean, it wouldn't pay nearly as much, but on the other hand, the publicity, I mean, you could do it the way you want it. It wouldn't just be this giant trough of stuff that people are throwing stuff into, you know? You see that with the music industries too. Um, We have a bunch of musical artists on and a lot of, we're at the point, why even sign a record deal? You know, like you could get, you have so many more outlets and you have a hundred percent control of the music you want to make. You know, you don't have to adhere to like putting out some like, I don't know, cheesy radio hit if you don't want to. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of across and, the board there. Yeah, and what's what's preventing you if you do have this pilot or the show idea that you really believe in? What's preventing you from going to YouTube and just 
assembling a team and just uploading it, you know, a couple episodes, see if it gets traction. Is that, does that, am I simplifying that? It's just more difficult. It's the cost. It's the cost. If it's an expensive show, like we're producing, you know, Josh, one of the things Josh and I are working on these days is a, is a spinoff of our old show, Mission Hill. And that's extremely, we're extremely, extremely excited about that, but it's expensive. Animation is so expensive, especially good right. animation, you know, not like, you know, ham stuff you could do at home, but like professional quality animation is expensive. And so like, we're not going to, we're obviously not going to be able to animate the Mission Hill spinoff and put it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. We have to find a place hopefully like Netflix or HBO max that will pay for it. And that, but they'll, for them, it has to be worth it. You know, will they get enough viewers and will they get enough traction for, but for a cheap show that, you know, yeah, YouTube might be the way to go. And I think people are doing that, uh, doing that like a lot these days because e- even the places that like, for instance, Netflix, if you had a regular, like Netflix, normally part of the excitement about getting into business with a, net, with a network is that they're going to promote the crap out of your show. Like mm-hmm. there's going to be billboards. There's mm-hmm. going to be publicity. There's going to be magazine articles, interviews. The stars are going to go on late on tonight's show and that kind of thing. And that does happen, but it only happens with a tiny fraction mm-hmm. of those things And there. Uh, and so like if you had a show, for instance, if you had like some sort of, you know, comedy show on Netflix, how, how much publicity would you possibly get? Mm-hmm. You know, I, and that's the thing because there's so much, they have 150 shows to promote right. a year. Like that's the, I think yeah. that's the trade-off We're at the cusp of something happening with that. I think it's almost yeah. like from what you're saying, from what I'm gathering, if you have a chance to sign a deal with Netflix or an independent, uh, like uh, advertising company, you know, if you're the only show on that one company, they're going to pump money into you only because you're like the last, right. kind of like Jerry Maguire with Rod Tidwell. That was his only, that, right. right. That was yeah. his right. only, yeah. But they have Netflix has incredible reach too. So, but it's like there's I guess you'd say there's trade-offs and there's different types of shows. Like there's some shows that are obviously Netflix is the best place to go, mm-hmm. and there's some shows where it's not. And it's I think the thing is there's so much more TV than there was. Mm. So much TV video. There's a trillion times more than there was yeah. in 1996. You know, it's people. Part of it is getting people to notice your thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's like why Jim Jaffikin, uh his stand-up moved to Amazon Prime because he said Netflix is coming out with stand-up specials every other week. So yours just kind of is lost in the noise. From the thing about him is also that he's already built, like he's built his own brand. Yeah. Like yeah, he doesn't yeah. even need them. Like people know who Jim Gaffigan is and like, he's got yeah. books, he's got a tour, he's got a brand. Like he's, he's the perfect example of someone who has – done this in my opinion the right way where mm-hmm. he's built his own brand and the outlet is not important so as a writer what do you enjoy more is it more of like the cartoon stuff or more of like the live stuff because you were part of uh writing in portlandia too for brunch village which is one of my like all-time favorites like what what do you find more creative like for your style of writing i like animation better because i'm a control freak and i like to have every single thing be my exactly the way I want it, which is the way it works in animation because I direct the actors. I tell the director how I want the shot set up. I can, and it's like, as I described in the process, the showrunner, an animated show is the, you know, is the director and writer of a movie combined. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you control everything. And that's the way I like it. On Portlandia, which was a very fun experience. It's not like that at all because they make up the show. Like we would work, we'd work on the scripts, uh, me and Fred and Carrie and John Christ will work on the scripts. And then they would go out there and not even look at the scripts and just improvise all day about the topic. And, and that's like, it was fun because it was a fun experience. And those people, they're, they're brilliant at improvising, but then the editors would just kind of piece together what they had made up on the set and the scripts were not important. So although it was like a fun summer camp experience for me, it's not, it's not the way that I like to work. I mean, I, I liked I liked the experience, but I didn't. It wouldn't be the kind of show I would do. Do you get like a bunch? Because you live in Portland and stuff too. Do people come up to you and be like, "You're trashing us"? Like, why are you like writing on that? They, <laughs> they did that a few years ago, but like people, well, people don't mention it. Portland's a very passive aggressive city, so they wouldn't. They simply wouldn't mention it. But at the time, um, I think people liked it. People actually kind of liked it the first year the show was on. That was the whole year where they put a bird on it and that kind of thing, and then everyone turned on it real fast. And so I didn't, I didn't go around saying, I didn't go around telling people that I worked in Portland yet. I just imagine it being like Ron Burgundy, like, damn you, Ron Burgundy, you talk trash about our city, like get out of here. It, I, I didn't, I didn't go around talking about 
Well, uh, one of the things I think is the best about this, the Simpsons to track, backtrack on it is the character development. Um, I, I think what yeah. separates the Simpsons from, let's say, a South Park, which I, lo- I love South Park, but I feel like sometimes, this is me personally, if the episode doesn't necessarily revolve around Cartman, I find myself tuning out a bit. Um, with the Simpsons, you could have an episode about Marge, Lisa, Lenny, Carl, Mo, and it doesn't matter. It is equally as funny. So what 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 to you is the difference between that and who was your favorite character to write about if you were basing an episode on? Um, well, uh, I think part of what you're describing is the character development. The Simpsons has had the benefit of being on for 30 years. So the characters, like, you couldn't have done an episode about Mo in the first season. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the characters over time, we've come to know more about Lenny and Carl and all these other peripheral characters. And so now there's a giant arsenal of characters that can sustain episodes. Whereas in the early days, you really had to focus on the family. And I think, you know, the first episodes probably that were not about the family, people were nervous about doing them and, and, you know, like flaming modes or whatever, but even then Homer's the majority of the story. So over time, those other characters have gotten in. So I don't know, like South Park, I still can't tell, I don't watch it enough to tell the difference. I can't tell the difference between Stan and the other guy. Who's the other guy that's not Cartman. Okay. Okay. Stan and Kyle. I can't tell the difference between Stan and Kyle. So that's like, I'm sure that the viewers of that show probably have could easily do that and tell you the whole backstory, but mm-hmm. I personally can't because they look too similar. That's part of the thing. So like, I mean, Matt, Matt's one of the things that he always said was that you want to be able to tell the characters from a silhouette on a billboard mm. and like, you want them to be like, and that's what we did mission Hill. We did that same thing because every character had a different color scheme. So that's, and anyway, but that's like, that's, that's either here nor there. So my, my favorite character to write for was, is Chalmers. And Skinner, which is why I wrote that thing. In 22 short films, we all get to pick our favorite characters to write those things. That's cool. And so I love that. I love those things. I didn't write them. I just love them because they were done done before we started working on the show. That thing where Skinner would lie. Like, what's that? What's that boy say? What's a battle? That's a rat. You know, that kind of thing. That's, 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 that's I think, where that started. And then they did a couple more of those. And Josh and I just thought that was the funniest thing ever. So we'd try to force it into every episode we wrote. Um, And then when we got the chance to do our favorite characters, I was like, I want to do nothing but that. It's going to be an entire segment of Chalmers at questioning Skinner's lies, but only questioning them a little bit. Right. No, that, that's really cool, man. Thank you. Uh, well, one last thing about your writing, Bart versus Australia, me and Brian here, we quote that episode probably more than any episode <laughs> yeah. in our friendship. Um, how did you come up with Chaz Wazers? <laughs> we had this book. Oh, you know what? Part of, I'll tell you what happened with the episode was we were like, Many of the coming up with episodes is not easy, especially mm-hmm. I mean, it's much harder now, I imagine. But in the, even in the eight season, we're like, this has already been done. We've done it. One of the things that people would do is the episode had titles like Bart versus Thanksgiving or, you know, Lisa versus something. So you'd always, one way you could do is have a slot machine in your head going Bart versus whatever. We're like, what's, what's something really huge? Well, whole continent. Bart is against, Bart's against whole continent. He could be versus Australia. There's a continent. Hey, that makes sense. And then we, that's how we, that's literally how we came up with that idea as we were doing like a slot machine type thing and going Bart versus blank. And then we're like, something huge. Australia's a continent. And then we crafted a story to, to fill, to meet that title. And we had this book. All we had was one book about Australia. That was a tourist guide. And it was filled with a lot of the crazy wildlife and a lot of the crazy expressions that they have um, in, in Australia. And I think we just, got kind of silly <laughs> and we're like, we started making up fake expressions like Chuzz Wuzzers, you know, and that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd get an answer from that. I am. I thank you so much. And the Malonga Gula Chuck, there's another one. Malonga Gula Chuck is another one that we made up that we're just piecing together Australian phrases from our <laughs> guidebook. And the knifey spoony thing that, yeah. that scene. That was in the room. That was when everyone was silly in the room and, and I, we did not make that part up. Uh-huh. I think it, I think it was originally something far more serious because it was based on that, you call that a knife line right. from Crocodile yeah. Dundee. Yeah. And it was, that was like, our script actually was a little less silly than it. We didn't have the booting. We didn't have the knifey spoony. It was a little more realistic. And then in the room, uh, I think to our, uh, we were lucky that they made it a little more silly across the board because I think it worked. It's awesome, man. Yeah. Let me, let me ask this because we're talking about like episode structure. Um, when you're, when you were writing episodes, were you using any kind of template to come up with uh, how the story would be structured? Because you said like, okay, there's an act one, there's an act two, and there's an act three. Are you using something like, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the hero's journey, like the story wheel? 
Yeah, we were using actually, well, we were basing it on the earlier episodes, which in many cases had a, like we didn't use it all the time, but the episodes, and it's honestly just screenplay structure, which is if you have the, the, the most, the Bible of screenwriting is this book by Sid Field called Screenplay, which mm -hmm. talks about the three act structure and, and it has a little bit of the hero's journey, but it basically is just the way that all 95% of movies are made and, and many TV shows were the way that the you know conflict rises and then stuff happens and then there's a crisis in the thread. So we would we kind of internalize that and, and many Simpsons episodes have that structure. Uh, but one of the things the Simpsons did was at least in those days there'd be about a, eight minutes of random stuff before you got to the story. And yeah. it would often be they, they go to this they go to the mall they go to they go to some event and or they go to the um, water park and Homer gets stuck. So there'd be basically you have the first act would almost always be not always, but in, in many cases be about six minutes of just random stuff. Like they go to, it's some set piece where they go, something, something's happening like Bart's birthday party in that radio bar one where he falls down the well. It allows you to do a lot of like satirical jabs at whatever. And then by the end of the first act, it's clear what the story is. Um, and then in the second act, the story gets more intense um, until the third act where it often it, it, the, whatever the emotional stakes are in the story become physical. And I'll give you what I mean by example by that. In Bartzell's soul, it was, uh, in the second act, it was, in, he was, grew increasingly worried that maybe he had sold his soul. And then in the third act, it became physical. It became actually literally running to places to chase down his soul. Yeah. Um, that one where, um, the one with, uh, we're going to run Lovejoy, um, where he, where he loses his job. It's a crisis of faith. And then has that thing in the zoo where the orangutans are attacking him. That's the same structure where it becomes the, the, the emotional story becomes, becomes a physical story that somehow embodies what's going on. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's, that's really, I mean, like that's so yeah. much more in depth than I ever thought it would be. That's awesome. Come on, Dan. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Um, so like I just wanted to ask you like how you like you started getting into like the whole like food like your Instagram now right yeah. like with everything like how did you like think of oh I'm just gonna start doing these reviews I uh, well I was always doing this kind of thing like I've been I've been very opinionated about fast food I I was deprived <laughs> of fast food as a kid because I lived out in the country nearest McDonald's was 50 miles away I got to go for my birthday one my eighth birthday or whatever and wow. so I. I didn't get very much fast food as a kid. So I was always obsessed with it. And uh, I, I've had these opinions. I expressed them to my family and to friends and whatnot, and nobody cared. <laughs> so until I started expressing them on Instagram, I expressed them on Twitter. And then the Instagram thing basically just became an evolution of that, where I was like, do I really want to type a 10 part tweet about the McDonald's fresh beef quarter pounder? Why don't I just film it? And for some reason it took, I don't, I did not think it was going to take off to the extent that it did, but it did. I think people, a lot of times I didn't really think that what I was doing was funny, but people liked it, I guess, for some reason. So um, I've transformed it into a bit of an, a non-paying job that never pays anything, but allows me to get free food from places. Um, and so like I do these reviews and like, I've become somewhat, somewhat of a, a quote unquote influencer in the food <laughs> world, um, which is, which is delightful to me. And 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 just just to show you how crazy this whole thing is. Yeah, to touch on the food thing too that Dan brought up, like so you, what's like a hidden gem of fat? Obviously, we have our Wendy's out here in New Jersey. Our uh, we just got a few Sonics here. Um, Chick Fil A, you know, Chick -fil -A but, but like, what's a random one? Well, Arby's. Like people like people make fun of Arby's. And the Simpsons. I do not approve of the making fun of Arby's on The Simpsons. I didn't write those jokes. Um, <laughs> Arby's is so much better than people say it is. I've yeah. never had anything I'm bad there. So better than Burger King, would you say? Oh yes, Burger King's yeah. terrible. Oh, we've had an yeah, battle Burger for fifteen King. years. Yeah, Burger King is, is terrible. The Whopper with cheese is not terrible, but many of their other items are bad, and it's. I don't want to waste your whole podcast talking about this. No, this is Burger great. King, no, no. Scott King has always... had a battle with this forever, so this is yeah. perfect because Scott has gone head over heels for Burger King and has talked mm -hmm. trash about Arby's, one of the best chains His out there. His friends are BK buddies. It's a whole thing. <laughs> the, here's the thing about Burger King. 
they don't care about the quality of the food. They just want people on Twitter to be marveling at whatever their new thing is. Yep. And so every two months they come up with some new crazy thing that's like the, the Halloween Whopper or whatever. And then they get a lot of press for it and it's not very good. And they move on to the next thing. They haven't improved the menu. Like McDonald's has done a lot to overhaul its menu in the past four years, whereas Burger King does not and, and just relies on the same old things. And I think this, I'm not the only person who thinks this, but the Whopper is still good. Whopper cheese I still really like. Yeah. The rest of this stuff I don't like that much. But anyway, the one thing that I, I, as I said, I never ate at Arby's barely at all for the first 45 years of my life. But now I like it a lot and I will go seek it out. And I think that they have a number of really good things on the menu. I've never been disappointed there. Um, what else? Yes, Sonic has a number of good things, but none of them, I don't think Sonic, Sonic has a lot of real B plus items across mm. the board. Like tons of B pluses, very few A's. Um, that's how I feel about Wendy's. I feel like Wendy's is yeah. very like there's nothing I seek at Wendy's, but it's just all that's very money. Like yeah, yeah. you go to Wendy's. This is good. All the time. Yeah. yeah. What about In and Out? What about In and Out? You have one in Medford over there, right? Yeah, we did. Well, thank you for noticing our, our remote. Here's the thing. You know, Oregon has to do this. I really live in the worst possible state for this <laughs> because first of all, Oregon when they have those things like here, all fifty states, what the most popular and least popular food is. Oregon hates fast food. It's always fast food. Now, it's all about not natural farm-to-table Portlandia type food here. Yeah. So we don't have we don't have any of these things like Whataburger, Culver's, Brahms, In and Out. We have, we have now we have two In and Outs. Here's the thing about In and Out: it's not that great. It's good. It's extremely good for a drive-through burger, and that's mm -hmm. why California. It's legendary in California. And yes, up until about 1999, it was the best fast food burger. But everything else has gone up. In and Out has stayed exactly the same, which is God bless it. It stayed exactly the same since 1948. And it's, and it's terrific. And they do that one thing perfectly. However, it is not as great as the reputation. And it's not worth waiting in this line. Every one of these ones in Oregon has a 45-minute line. And I'm like, forget that. Never I'll mind. Say, Bill, to say Eric up here, he's he moved out to Oregon for like a few years. That's why he yeah. knows about out there. Was there 2015 oh, yeah. to 2018? I saw, you know, I know. How long have you been there? 12 years. 12 years. Okay. So you saw like the quote unquote old Portland compared to now. I saw a little bit of the old Portland in, in 2009, but it was pretty, it was already on the road to changing the Portlandia era is when it became a thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, we have out here in New Jersey, um, Chick-fil-A has about a 45 minute wait and I think that's worth it. No, I, it's over. I, I think the only, their only the regular standard chicken sandwich is conceivably worth that kind of wait. Okay, and even right. that, like Popeye, I'd rather really have the Popeye sandwich, oh, honestly. Do so you have Popeye's there? Yeah, Popeye yeah. sandwich, I like it better. I've had the, I think they're so close. Like the Chick-fil-A classic sandwich is marvelous, but the Popeye's chicken sandwich is just a teeny bit more marvelous. And there's never a line at Popeye's. Now, have, you ever, have you ever had like East Coast regional type of fast food? Not since I lived there in the you know, 80s. Have you Holy ever had White Castle? There's a really I fun. love White Castle. I love White Castle. But the thing is, I actually still think their microwave ones are better than the ones in the really? restaurant. Like I well, I've only yeah. I've only we don't have White Castle out here. So the only one I've been to was the one in Las Vegas. And who knows what kind of quality control they have at that one. It's on the Las Vegas <laughs> strip. You know, and like the ones they were they were perfectly fine. But I freak I love those microwave ones. I think they're delicious. And another one that you did that I thought was hysterical was it was the Jersey Mike's one. And then after the episode, your kids found you in your car passed out. Like has like your like your doctors or family been like you should well, like, that was I'm not going to give away too much Hollywood magic, but that was that was staged. Oh. <laughs> that was I wasn't really asleep. God damn! I can't believe you have no idea, uh, Bill. Brian and I here have had an argument over Burger King and Arby's since Here. 2006, where I've actually orchestrated marathons to run two or three miles, not marathons, but runs with me and my friends, two miles to the Burger Kings to try to publicize it, and my wow. other. Brian and his my our other friend Minx were Arby affiliates and they were the only ones who talked up Arby. So for you to actually bring up those two is act, like so insanely yeah. I, I was coincidental. It's crazy. Yeah. But well, I, they're they're polarizing uh, they're polarizing <laughs> elements and Arby's has taken a lot of knocks just because it has a funny name and has a sound and it goes Arb. It's a funny sound, which is why John Stewart every night for. 10 years on store was making fun of Arby's, which gave the gave it this reputation to some degree because um, it has a funny sound. Well, my, my, my knock was I went there 13 years ago to give it a shot and there was flat diet soda and I never got over it. Well, so that, that, 
it's true. It's right. it can happen. So do you plan on uh, actually like going to like Universal and stuff and actually trying like the Krusty Burger over there? I did have the, well, I'm going to be mad if, let me tell you this. I'm going to be mad if they start selling a steamed ham sandwich there mm-hmm. and they don't invite me because they never, yeah. I never give any, they never give me any credit. They, I never get invited to any of that crap. So if they start selling steamed hams at one of those places, which I bet they will, I'm going to be mad, but no, I haven't had the Krusty Burger. I had the Cletus's chicken shack thing, which is like the honey maple chicken thing. It was good. Now being a writer of the show, obviously like, you know, you could, you could kind of go places and walk around and see like if you went to the Simpsons place in universal and people, do you get recognized like that? Or you could kind of like walk around and hear people talk about it. And like, it's kind of surreal to see, you know, without being like rushed upon. I never got recognized anywhere until I started doing these fast food things because people don't know what I look like. Mm-hmm. Now I get recognized all the time in places like certainly in Portland, but like I get recognized in, in the LA airport. I got recognized in downtown LA. I got recognized in various places. So people, I mean, maybe, I don't know, one out of every million people know what I look like. But, and honestly, I did walk around Universal Studios in LA and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have any of those experiences. I did like, I mean, I like to see things that I worked on, become 3D. I love this stuff like upstairs. Have you guys been to the Universal Studios? In Florida, I have. Okay. I went to one in Florida. Wow. The one in LA has the, um, in the restaurants, like the, they have, the upstairs is the greatest part because it's the, all these the animators, all these photos and stuff that the animators have done. And it just, it's filled with deep cuts from the show, which that was my favorite part, honestly. That's really cool. Uh, Bill, I, uh, uh, I'm 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 beyond thankful. Uh, I'm out of questions. So we could get to our final segment. I have one more, right, just for on. your just for your upcoming steamies. Um, for condiment of the year, I just want to throw in there the Old Bay hot sauce. Definitely. How could I have not gotten Old Bay? I mean, Old Bay. You know, I'm from I'm from Maryland, and in fact, I have my Old Bay. I ordered these Maryland um, COVID masks, and I have this. Uh, have you seen this? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I have Old Bay. So yes, Old Bay. Actually, That's Old Bay is one of those things that like, I started kind of grandfathered in. Like I've been eating Old Bay my whole life and I never think of it as, I only kind of review this in the new stuff. Mm. Um, and so like, of course, Old Bay would win. It sort of it should be in the Hall of Fame. It shouldn't be competing mm. for the award this year. <laughs> but yeah, the Old Bay hot sauce is like, I've got the, it only comes out like during the summer for like one month and I stock up on that. I have one. I have one right here, and I haven't opened it because I heard it was really good on oysters. And I'm going to wait until um, I can get to a really nice oyster place after COVID and, and take it along. Nice. Bill, uh, we we want to ask you, though, the new stuff you got coming out, if you want to promote really quick, you know, stuff you're working yeah, on. Yeah. Well, the only thing I have right – well, I got a lot of stuff that you never – like I said, I develop lots of stuff that you never <laughs> hear of. Um, most importantly is this Mission Hill spinoff, which I hope – Mission Hill, just for those who are not familiar – Mission Hill was a show that Josh and I did after we left The Simpsons. They had Simpsons. We did using our Simpsons style writing, and it takes place in a, in a kind of hip urban neighborhood. And there's a, a teenage boy and his older brother, and they have a lot of events. That's that summarized. It's it's hard to summarize, but in any case, um, it was kind of like it definitely became a cult classic, even though we only worked on it for a year. But Adult Swim ran it ran it for years and years and years. In any case we're working on a spinoff of the show that is basically just kind of a continuation of it uh, that we are out with now. And hopefully you will be seeing it. Hopefully one of these places will buy it and you will see it within the next year or two. Um, so that's one thing. And then otherwise, you know, just uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, uh, both of that Bill Oakley uh, on Twitter, or Instagram and on Instagram, basically every day, <laughs> every day I have some new food thing and every week or so I have a new video review and they're all, mildly funny if you like mildly funny food information it's not too long you it's 59 seconds so you might <laughs> get a blast get a kick out of it and then i do my steamy awards every year every year at the, as dan mentioned every year at the end of the year i do this award show which is broadcast from the front seat of my car in my driveway where i get various celebrities to to read my list of what potato chip flavors were the best flavor i had that year that That's kind of amazing. thing amazing that is awesome. Bill, we do a final segment here. We do like a gun to your head. It's kind of a would you rather. Um, it's not necessarily like Yankees or Mets. It's it's kind of – we do wordplay involved since we kind of started as a hip-hop podcast. So we get we each ask two questions, right? And All right. And your favorite question at the end, you have to pick a winner. Okay? Okay. All right, so I'll start it off, all right? All right, since uh, you're food guy, I'm going to go a little food on this one. Would you rather for a year – have unlimited supply of a Frosty from Wendy's or be friends with Frosty the Snowman? (laughs) 
All right, do I wait till you all answer the question? No, no, that one it's, it's all you. It's all you. <sighs> I'd rather be friends with Frosty the Snowman. Yeah. I, you know, I feel like one or two Frosties per, per month or really per year is all I need. And I think that the, ma the magic of, of being friends with Frosty would probably <laughs> provide a lot more entertainment and fun yeah. and, and probably just give me a much more mm -hmm. charmed life than eating 365 Wendy's Frosties would. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right uh, last one for me. Would you rather eat only wings for a year or every email you receive is in the font of wingdings? <laughs> I'd rather eat wings for a year. I think I could do that and it wouldn't be that much of trouble as long as I had enough different types of sauces. You wouldn't want to decipher wingdings, right? No, no, that would be okay. too annoying. <laughs> All right, uh, Brian, you're up. All right. Okay. Um, would you rather join the Air Force or have someone force air into you? <laughs> I think I'd rather join the Air Force. It seems like I could die from having air. I could get an embolism or something from having Air Force into me. Join the Air Force, not, that seems like it might be kind of fun, especially if I could transfer to the Space Force. Um, would you rather be sponsored by Arm & Hammer or have an arm that's a hammer? Oh. I'd rather be sponsored by Arm & Hammer. I, I feel like the sponsorship could somehow – I don't feel I'd put it to much good use. <laughs> All right, Dan, since you have a suit – uh, we'll throw you up last. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll go. Okay, you start a new company and have an opening for your vice president. Who would you rather have, Homer Simpson or O.J. Simpson? God damn it. <laughs> That's a tough one. Really I guess it depends on what kind of company it is, you know. Like, uh, I don't <sighs> – that's tough. I don't know. Homer is a, Homer is a good soul. OJ, I don't think he is. Yeah, yeah. allegedly. But, but I feel like OJ <laughs> might be far more competent at running the thing. You know, given yeah. that he's given his experience in pulling off a, a murder that he got away with, he might uh, be able, good. He might be pretty good at that. For kind of your thing. sake, oh, you Homer, might just want to say Homer. So Homer. okay, Homer, <laughs> Homer, you're right, Homer, yeah. Homer, hundred okay. percent Homer. Yeah. Um, would you rather only Burger King forever, or your only friend is the Burger King? Hmm. That sucks. I'd rather be Burger King forever. Honestly, both of those are bad, but I'd rather be Burger King. I feel like I could do some deep dives into their salads or whatever. If they even serve salads, but I, I could probably make it work. I wouldn't like it at all. Oh, wait. You know, I have one more thing I want to promote. I have one more thing I want to promote before. Why don't we do the questions and I'll promote it at the end. Okay, perfect. Dan, Dan. All right. Would you rather live your life as Millhouse or have your family live in an, or live in an operating mill house? <laughs> I think I'd like to live in an operating mill house. Like, it seems like it might be kind of nice. Like, I mean, especially if it's out in the country and it's kind of one of those old rustic things with a water wheel. Yeah, and you would, but you'd have like a donkey going around and all that stuff the entire time. <laughs> People did that for hundreds of years. That's, I'd rather do that. I don't think, Millhouse unfortunately doesn't seem to have a good trajectory and at least in the future we projected for him, it seems like he kind of stays at a, a sad level throughout his entire life. And I feel like that owning my own, owning and operating my own mill could be kind of, either sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah. All right, and then would you rather only be able to eat egg rolls for the rest of your life or have to roll an egg every time you had to move? Oh, shit. That's a bad one, too. I, fuck. Hmm. Sorry. I shouldn't, can I no, curse on this fine. podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's the torturous one. I guess I'd rather eat egg rolls, All right. uh, but I don't, like, I don't like either of them very much. All right, Bill, your favorite question. I think it's going to be the mill. Honestly, it gives me, it gives me mill house. I, think it, I can, I can picture that scenario in my head and I, I don't mind it at all. I like, all right. I like the idea. Hey, Dan, Dan, Dan. You heard this one. What else did you need to promote Bill? Oh, okay. So starting in probably somewhere between five to six weeks, when I start selling these, I started a company that's going to make vinyl toys. And, you know, by vinyl toys, I mean those expensive ones that you see in the comic book store for a hundred bucks that are like fancy, like sculpture type things, mm -hmm. but they're, but they're funny. They're funny. They're sensibly funny. And um, so if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you'll, I'll be promoting this because we're going to sell, we're going to make a very limited number of them because it's, it's, um, it's just a process. The manufacturing process is complicated and expensive, but I want to just, I just wanted to do this. It's kind of reminds me of like, did you guys, you're probably all too young for wacky packages, but if you know what wacky packages are, there are these funny stickers that, that kids collected in the seventies and they've been coming out. And so I wanted to do basically a 3d version of that where it's, it's kind of visual comedy. So like, and the care, and what it is, is it's funny characters like, you know, advertising characters like count Chocula, Ronald McDonald, but they're fake characters. 
and they're funny characters that were that were bad for one reason or another. And um, I won't spoil it too much, but um, it is going to be something that it's certainly the first thing I've ever done that is something that people can actually buy and hold in their hands, which I'm, makes me excited. That's awesome. really cool. That's okay. yeah, that's really cool, man. Sure. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, this is really cool, man. I, Thanks, Phil. I couldn't have asked for anything more. This is a lot of information. I, I always wanted to know about the Simpsons and you know, your fast food thing, even though you picked Arby's over Burger King, I, <laughs> it is what it is. So I think I speak for everyone here when like, this was a real honor, man. I hope you had a good time. I hope you'll come Thank on you. again sometime. I will. It was very fun. If you want to go over the Steam Awards on this show, that'd be phenomenal, too. <laughs> we can do a recap after, in January after they're done. Yeah, sure. Perfect. We'll love to have you on. Thanks a lot, man. Okay.